Last week, I nearly started a fire in the kitchen. I wasn't cooking, surprisingly. I wasn't actually cooking. I wasn't doing one of Chris's two recipes. But I was repairing an iPhone. Um, we had an iPhone in our house that the battery had gone. And you charged it, and it really only lasted for about five minutes before the battery died. So I thought I was talented and skilled enough to replace the battery. So I went onto Amazon. I ordered a new iPhone battery. I watched all these YouTube videos. I don't know if you've ever done this, where you watch the YouTube instructions of how to do something. And I thought, I can do that. I can do that. So it came. It arrived, complete with instructions. I was sat there, had all these fancy tools out, got the screen off did all this stuff about taking bits out, and I thought it was doing really well. So I got the old battery out, put it on one side, and nudged one of the contacts. There was a big puff of smoke, a huge flame appeared, and I thought I was going to set the kitchen on fire. So um, it was a bit like a scene from Aladdin without a genie. It was that kind of moment. So I literally opened the back door and threw this thing down the garden. I didn't know what else to do. Thankfully, there was no fire. This phone that needed rescuing needed a proper rescuer. It did not need me, and I failed in my attempt. Ruth chapter 4 is all about rescue. It's about redemption. It's about Boaz fulfilling this role. It's, it was labeled in our, our reading today as the family redeemer, the guardian redeemer. I'll be calling it the kinsman redeemer as we go through. And it's the culmination of the account of Ruth, where we end up at really what is quite an unusual scene of an ancient wedding ceremony and a property transfer all mixed in together. And it's a real reminder, I think, just as we start looking at this passage, that when we read the Old Testament, we are really looking into a very different world than the world we live in today. And it's always well to remember that actually we need to do our homework sometimes. We need to dig a little bit deeper and understand the culture of the day. Otherwise, we miss what's going on and we don't necessarily understand it. This passage also reminds us just once again how patriarchal this ancient society was and how women were effectively treated as property. And we will see that through this passage. But we'll also see how God is moving his people forward. And as the book of Ruth draws to a close next week, we'll see that Ruth becomes part of God's biggest plan in sending Jesus the Messiah. But more of that to come. If you were joining with us last week, we sort of pressed the pause button after the point where Ruth was lying at the feet of Boaz. And we had that rather strange um, sort of engagement proposal, the marriage proposal, and where there was the agreement from Boaz that he would become the kinsman redeemer if the closer family relative didn't want to. If you're not quite sure what a kinsman redeemer is, just read this on the screen. Now, I'll read it out very quickly. This is not from me, so it's got a copyright thing on the bottom if you want to look it up. The kinsman redeemer is a male relative who, according to various laws of the Pentateuch, had the privilege or responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who was in trouble, danger, or need. The Hebrew term goel, the kinsman redeemer, designates one who delivers or rescues or redeems property or person. The kinsman, redeemer who, the, the kinsman who redeems or vindicates relative is illustrated most clearly in the book of Ruth. And this is the, the role that Boaz takes. And so we get to chapter 4. And the scene changes. Sorry, not to that scene. We don't want to go to the sandals just yet. The scene changes to the town gate. We're now at the gate of the town where, where Boaz lives. And the town gate is the place where business transactions are done. The most modern sort of parallel we could think of is a town hall or a city hall where all kinds of things go on about the business of the town and the locality. 
It was at the town gate that the elders would gather. They would come and they would sign off on business deals. They would sign off on property transactions, on marriage proposals. And so Boaz comes to the town gate and he meets this other potential kinsman redeemer. You notice how he does so in a friendly manner. It's all done in a good way. And we don't know this man's name. We never find out who he is. We don't know anything about him. But we get the impression from the reading that actually what this man thinks is on offer is a property transaction. And first of all, he seems quite up for this. And as the conversation goes on, we see that this is a man who is a very transactional kind of person. He's quite into a property deal. He's quite into getting Naomi's land. But actually, once it goes beyond that, we start to see things fall apart. Because in verses 5 to 8, if you've got the Bible there, you might want to just have a look. He then informs the man that if he acts as the kinsman redeemer, he would have to marry Ruth as well. Now, this is where it gets a bit technical and complicated. Stick with me for a minute, and I'll try and explain it the best I can. According to the law of Moses, and you can see this in Deuteronomy 25, verse 6, the land that the unnamed man had redeemed, should Ruth have a son, would then pass to the son of Ruth. So the kinsman redeemer would end up buying this land only to have it passed on to somebody else. Now, this unnamed man doesn't see that that's a very good business deal. He's spending this money to get absolutely nothing and to end up having to look after Ruth's son and whatever. He sets out looking just after himself. He looks after himself. It can be very easy, I think, in life, can't it, to be asking those questions, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Not to think about other things, not to think about the bigger picture. This man does this. That's all he's interested in. What is in it for me? And what happens? He ends up as an unnamed footnote, unnamed in the book of Ruth, and we don't know anything more about him. Boaz, out of love for Ruth, under the Lord's guidance, ends up being one of the ancestors of Jesus. Look at the difference that makes. Boaz is motivated by love for Ruth. He fulfills the law, but it's out of heartfelt motivation. It can also be quite easy, I think, sometimes in life to to go through life without questioning our motives. And I mean our motives on the biggest scale. If, If you work today, why do you do the job that you do? What motivates you to do that work? If there are things in your life that you you want today, it might be that you want something materially. It might be that you want a particular relationship. What's the motivation behind it? What's the heart desiring? Why is it desiring those things? What drives us? What are those things that we long for? I think sometimes if we just hold those kind of questions before the Lord, it can actually be really transformative as we allow God to speak into our hearts. Ask him to search the depths of our being. For Boaz, his heart is a heart of love for Ruth. And it cuts through these rather um, odd negotiations. Because now we come to the bit you've all been waiting for. The bit I mentioned last week, the negotiation involving the giving and receiving, not of rings, but of sandals. Now you can have the picture of the feet. How wonderful is that? There you can see the verse where that takes place. Now, each culture has its own way of doing things, doesn't it? If we want to perform a land transaction, what do we do? We sign documents. We have to prove who we are. We take it all to a solicitor, and it all gets dealt with for us. If you're going to get married, you give and receive rings. I don't think anybody today gives and receives a sandal, although perhaps it might be something we could bring back. 
This is just this. This is what is happening. It's just literally a legal signing off. And then in verses 9 to 12, we see that Ruth and Boaz become married. They are blessed by the elders of the town. They are prayed over, and we will do more on this next week, but their prayer is actually a prophetic prayer. It's a prayer that looks into the future and sees the blessings that will come through the line of Ruth and Boaz. I just want us to pause there. I want us to ask a question about the role of the kinsman redeemer, this guardian redeemer. What can this role teach us about the ministry of the church, about our individual sense of calling? In the coming weeks, we know that actually restrictions are going to be lifting. Some kind of more normal life is hopefully, and we pray, is on its way. What does this account have to teach us? At the heart of Boaz's motivation is love. That's what drives him. That's what cuts through all this giving and receiving of sandals. That's what motivates him. At the heart of the gospel is love. That's why Jesus came. That's why God sent his only son. Jesus is God's, God's um, love gift to us. Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, and I absolutely love this verse, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is at the heart of the gospel. The kinsman redeemer, our redeemer, is Jesus who fulfills this role perfectly and absolutely as he buys us back, not just in this life, but for all eternity, as he rescues us. Boaz, in loving Ruth, fulfills the role of the kinsman redeemer. He is the family member who buys back. Out of his love, Jesus likewise provides way for us to be brought back. When I was at the, the Nazarene College in Didsbury back in the, the 1990s, um, we had a lecturer who was very um, passionate about talking about the role of the kinsman redeemer. And I remember that there are some times in life where you hear something said that sticks with you for a long time. And there are lots of times when preachers go on and on and on, and I do this, I know, and you don't take any notice whatsoever. But this was one of those transformative moments. And during this lecture, this particular lecturer said, what if the kinsman redeemer has something to teach us about how we should be as church? What if this role that in so many ways has been lost to us has something really transformative to remind us about the nature of the church? Just think about this book of Ruth for a moment. Think about Ruth at the start of the book. She is vulnerable. She is lost. She is without hope. She has no future. She is literally a person on the margins. She's there gleaning from the fields of Boaz. She has no hope of rescuing herself. Nothing that she can do to lift herself out of that position of poverty. She needs the kinsman redeemer. Now the rescue comes, as we found out, from Boaz. But it comes from love. But it has a very practical outworking, doesn't it? What does she find? She is given a home. She has shelter. She will have food. And she becomes what's even greater. She becomes part of God's salvation story through Jesus Christ. Now, much of the role of the kinsman redeemer obviously doesn't apply to us as church today. All this idea of people being property is something we've moved well past in our society, and rightly so. And the idea of arranged marriage is something that is not um, part of our culture in a Western setting. But at the heart of this role is the idea of God buying back, of being redeemed, of being brought back into community. Now, there is that eternal 
redemption, absolutely. But there is also what happens in this life now. There is also what happens now. The care of God ministered through human action. Let's just ask ourselves for a moment, who are the people who are on the margins in our society? Who are the people in Lim, in the surrounding areas? Who are the people you know, perhaps members of your family or friends, who actually are on the margins? People who are vulnerable. People who are alone. There are people in our society, people who who live nearby here, who have really serious needs, who live on that edge of poverty. How are we reaching out to people with those kind of needs? But sadly, too often, in what is predominantly a middle-class area, like where we are here, those problems of addiction, of loneliness, of debt, of problems with self-esteem, of ill health, whether it's mental or physical, they can hide away behind curtains of respectability. And we can sometimes fail to realize that they're there. Now, the gospel cuts through all that, doesn't it? The good news is for everybody. But James will say in his epistle, he say, you know, you need faith and you need action. Faith springs us into action. Grace has to be lived out. Just look at these verses from James chapter 2. In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Now, it's not the deeds that save us, absolutely not. But it's out of grace that we see the enacting of what God calls us to be and to do. If Boaz had just come to Ruth and said some nice, pleasant words, that wouldn't have been enough, would it? He had to act. He had to get stuck in. He had to redeem her. He had to do those things that changed her reality. When we live out our response to the gospel, other people, we can reach out towards them, and we can then invite them to being part of God's bigger plan for salvation. Do we live out? Do we genuinely live out that kind of role as individuals and as a church? So I just want to leave you really with two things to think about. How does this role, the kinsman-redeemer role, this, this role that is lost to us in so many ways, how does it relate to us personally? Who do you know at the moment that we can live out a response to the gospel? Who do we know that are on the margins? Where actually it might just be all that's needed is a simple act of kindness. It might be that it's some practical support. It might be um, through offering to pray or offering a listening ear. It might be you doing something totally different, like volunteering with Oasis or The Hideaway. But thinking about those who are on the margins and saying, Lord, what are you calling me to do and to be? But what about as a church? Chris has already mentioned this, but as we come out of restrictions, I think it'd be a, a, a really, I suppose, a missed opportunity if we didn't really think about who we are and about what our role is in our community. The church is called to be the body of Christ, to act out of compassion into our communities. We chatted in our last Zoom meeting as a church about the use of the coffee lounge, simply to welcome people in, to be kind to people, to offer that listening ear. But what else is God saying to us as a church? I just want to leave that one, and let's chat about that as we keep our conversations going. In Boaz, we see an example of the law fulfilled out through love. In Christ, we see the completion of the law fulfilled. In Christ's death and resurrection, we see our salvation is possible. 
In Christ's ministry, we are called, we are called, commissioned to be his hands and feet in the world. Let's be those people. Let's remember Boaz as we live our lives. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for Boaz. Just thank you for his love for Ruth. Thank you for what an amazing picture this gives us of both your work and the continued ministry of the church. Lord, I pray that where we are less than you call us to be, you will forgive us. And I pray, Lord, that you will give us those opportunities to reach out with your love, with your kindness, with, with your grace, with your salvation, with your mercy. Lord, would you do a new thing in our day, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.